Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge. This is a WKCR show hosted by the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, also known as AC4. AC4 is housed at Columbia's Earth Institute and brings in leading scholars and practitioners on peace and conflict and the dynamics of peace and conflict to this radio show. We're pleased today to have a special guest, Dr. Peter Coleman, and I'm Meredith Smith, a program coordinator at AC4. Dr. Coleman is a professor of psychology and education, director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at Teachers College. Professor Coleman also serves as a co-chair and executive director of the AC4 at Earth Institute. And today we're going to focus on a systems approach in peace building. Professor Coleman has formulated a theory called dynamical systems theory, also known as DST. And he was should have said before how Conversations from the Leading Edge was actually founded by Professor Coleman. And under his leadership, this radio show has been going on for two years now. And I have the privilege of hosting him this time, although Professor Coleman continues to be a host for the show. So it's great to be on the other side of the table. How does it feel, Professor Coleman? Welcome. I feel a lot of pressure. <laughs> no, it's good. It's great to be here. Thank you for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the show and be here and learn more about DST and a systems approach to peace building. I would love to start off by hearing just kind of a, a basic understanding. What's a way to that you would explain to a new student in the field of peace building, what is systems thinking? So our, our goals are modest around dynamical systems thinking and work. Uh, we really are trying to revolutionize research and practice of peace and conflict worldwide. So it's a small, um, ambitious goal to really try to um, uh, reintroduce complexity and time into our understanding of what happens around conflict and peace. So um, there has been, you know, decades of systematic research in the study of war and aggression and violence and to some degree of, of peace and peace processes. Um, but much of that research is in the kind of traditional scientific paradigm of analyzing, taking something like a mediation process uh, or the Iran negotiations and trying to understand pieces of it, the personalities involved or the conditions involved or the, the outcomes, the treaty themselves, the agreements themselves. And, and looking at pieces of them and then trying to understand the relationships between the pieces. And that's been helpful to approach the study of peace and conflict through science, but it's also limited in terms of its impact in the real world. And so what we've been trying to do is reintroduce the complexity of life and the flow of life, the dynamics of life, um, back into our understanding and work in peace and conflict. So it's an ambitious undertaking. It, it does involve thinking methods and ideas from applied mathematics, uh, which really tries to understand all kinds of phenomenon, you know, physical phenomenon, but also social phenomenon in the most essential ways, and then understand how those essential elements kind of interact over time to create certain patterns. So, so thinking systemically, or as we say, dynamical systems, before the, uh, the show, Meredith was joking with me that, the, the, you know, some of her friends were questioning the concept of dynamical, whether that's actually a word. It is, in fact, a word. It's a word out of physics and applied mathematics. And it does connote that there are these things that, if, that 
evolve in time. Dynamics are patterns that evolve in time. And so we try to understand conflict or peace processes as these things that are patterns that evolve in time and what are the multiple things that make those up. So in some ways, thinking systemically or through the dynamical systems lens helps us understand negotiation, mediation, peace processes, peace building um, in a more comprehensive and holistic way. It allows us, it recommends, encourages us to kind of back up and understand the constellation of forces that are at play and then to move in and focus on specific elements. So what science, of course, tends to do is, you know, again, look at the pieces. What we're trying to suggest is that it's important to look at the pieces, but only when you're mindful of the broader context and how it's evolving over time. So it really is trying to reintroduce sort of a sense of history and the temporal patterns that have uh, come pl taken place before, as well as the complexity of the context into our understanding of peace and conflict dynamics. Make sense? Well, let's continue to unpack this, and I good. think hopefully um, we'll get more and more. It sounds good so far. <laughs> um, well, let me say one thing. So in a in a book I wrote in, uh, called The 5% in 2011, I, what I laid out there is that in, in most approaches to social science, the study of peace um, has certain assumptions. So we tend to look at, at things as cause and effect. If we increase this, if we increase, increase certain incentives or, or a mediator's capacity to listen, do we see better outcomes? So we tend to look at those kinds of short-term relationships, what we call linear relationships. If you change X, you see a change in Y. And that's a, a helpful start in science. But ultimately, when we increase incentives, when we enhance people's ability to listen and to attend to certain things, that happens in a very complicated space. And so we have to understand how those things play out in a broader context over time, right? So it really is trying to take what we've learned from 80 years of systematic research in various disciplines on peace and conflict and then recontextualize them and understand how those things play out over time in more complex environments. Great, and can you tell me more about your background? I know you've written so much on this topic, so maybe we can take a step back and hear how you got into this research. Sure, so, um, so the conflict research came from, so I was born in Chicago and grew up in the 1960s in Chicago, which was a very controversial place. So in the 60s, there was the nonviolent civil rights movement. King was there for a while. Um, there was, I was in one of the first schools that was desegregated, so I went through a desegregation process as a, as in a second grader. And there was also a sort of violent anti-war movement. There were, there was uh, Mayor Daley's reaction to the protesters around the Democratic Convention there. Um, so I saw this kind of violence and nonviolence, and it, we were sort of an epicenter of a lot of change in the 60s. Um, and I think that sort of fostered in me what I call a sort of sense of macro worry. Even as a kid, it was like there was a lot going on, and clearly it was helpful to pay attention, right? So, so when I came to New York, I had a couple of other careers, but at some point I became involved in working with violent youth and worked with them in hospitals at first. And these were oftentimes uh, kids who had drug problems, who were oftentimes... Uh, fighting sentences and were inpatient to try to reduce their sentences. They'd committed murder. They'd, they'd you know, been um, involved in drug trafficking. And so it was a very violent population that I worked with, and I was interested in trying to understand how to do that effectively. So I, I worked in that capacity for a couple of years, 
and at some point started to read about it and think about it conceptually. It was, you know, it, it felt worthwhile and important to do it, but I really wasn't sure what I was doing. I was sort of working off of my instincts. Um, and so I started to read more broadly, and one of the people I read was a man named Morton Deutsch, who was a eminent theorist in the study of peace and conflict. And he happened to be at Columbia. And so in time, I came here and studied with him. And he was a brilliant theorist in the study of how he, he, he spent his whole career basically trying to understand when conflicts take place, when do they go well and make relationships better and help you understand yourself more and, and you know, end up in places where basically everybody's satisfied or when do they escalate, become problematic, violent, um, destructive. And that was really the question he organized his, um, his life's work on. And so I came to study with him just as, actually as he was retiring at Columbia, um, and he had set up the center, the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution that I eventually became director of. So, so I went there to study with him. He was an experimental social psychologist. He trained with this brilliant guy named Kurt Lewin, uh, and Lewin was, was a German Jew who fled Nazi Germany, brilliant social scientist, and he came to this country to study, um, well, he, he fled Nazi Germany and came here, and then he was really interested in studying things like democracy and autocracy and violence and social conflict. Um, uh, but he was very um, clear about the method to do that. And his method was to understand things in complex terms, but then to work and really develop robust theory and then to test the theory and refine the theory. So he created a sort of approach to psychology and to the study of social conflict. And, and ultimately, he trained Mort. And then Mort set up a lab here at Columbia and really did some groundbreaking work here. And so I came to study with him at the end of his career. Um, and I was trained by him as an experimental social psychologist. I was studying experimental social psychology and of, of peace and conflict. Um, and we were making progress and we were learning a lot. But I was interested in problems that didn't lend themselves to kind of lab research, short-term lab research. So we were particularly interested in studying what we call intractable conflicts. Israel-Palestine comes to mind, but you know there are many conflicts in people's families and communities and worldwide that seem to be impossible to solve. They seem to go on for decades and decades despite you know good faith attempts to resolve them. And those kinds of phenomenon seem to be hard to study in the lab right, to take something, a piece of them, to study people's how identity or trauma or power dynamics or oppression, any of those sort of pieces have um, a central role in intractable conflicts. So I became frustrated with trying to look at the pieces of a problem like that and really started to realize that I needed to understand both the pieces and how they connected together in some kind of dynamic way. And so I started to try to approach them and think about them systemically, started to read some of the systems literature in the peace and conflict field. But I was frustrated with that as well because systems thinking has been around for a long time. Uh, it's for decades been popularized. Um, general systems theory was a, um, a model that was first really pop popularized the idea. But um, about 20 years ago, systems thinking and physics and other areas hit a bit of a dead end in that it promised to help people understand a lot of things and ultimately wasn't really paying off. It was sort of saying, yes, things are complicated and a lot of things are related and we need to understand that, but it wasn't moving us much forward in terms of empirical science. 
So I was looking for people that were advancing the work on systems work, and that's when I ran, came into the work of uh, Robin Velikar and Andrzej Novak, who were, Andrzej's uh, a Polish social psychologist and complexity scientist. Robin is a social psychologist in this country. And they were really at the vanguard of trying to bring in ideas from physics and applied mathematics to study social phenomena. And they were doing really innovative work. And what was impressive to me is they weren't just sort of saying things are complicated and using the metaphors of complexity science, but they were taking those ideas and bringing them into the lab and, and really changing how we do research in the lab, creating new methods, creating new ideas, and reanalyzing a lot of what we thought about in psychology. So what's interesting is just ironically, some of the early thinkers in psychology, including Kurt Lewin, really did think about phenomena like war and peace and conflict in more systemic ways. They really did think about them in complex and dynamic ways. But because of our need to collect empirical research, empirical data, and conduct empirical research, we moved more and more into these kind of short-term linear cause and effect methods, which helped us understand pieces, but really didn't help us understand the whole. And what Valiker and Novak were trying to do is reintroduce a platform with new tools through mathematics and computer visualizations and things like that that would allow us to understand um, social phenomenon in more complex and dynamic terms. So I reached out to them and said, look, we do this work in peace and conflict. And they were like, great, we're in. We're interested in being involved in sort of that world. And so we started about 10 years ago this partnership where we eventually got funded to we were funded by a group called the James S. McDonald Foundation, and they fund things in complexity science, and usually they, they fund kind of oddballs who have promising ideas but really aren't quite ready for, like, NSF grants, mm -hmm. right? So they promising but strange characters, and that was a good characterization of us at the time, I think, is that we were this eclectic group of Larry Leibovich, who was a physis applied physicist, Andrea Bartoli, who was at Columbia at the time and is a peacemaker and an anthropologist, Myself, Andrzej Novak, Robin Bellaker, uh, Naira Musalam, who's a Palestinian-Israeli psychologist, Lan Buyrishinska, who was also a peace psychologist. So we were this eclectic group of people that came together and tried to work across these disciplinary lenses to use applied mathematics and systems thinking to better understand these sort of intractable and possible conflicts. Um, and so that's what got me here um, was really a frustration with, with the limits of our knowledge in using more traditional scientific paradigms to understand peace and conflict and the need to have an alternative that would build on what we'd learned from science but be able to put it in a context and put it in the terms of dynamics that helped us understand it at a different level. So are you doing this work at the, through your center at Teachers College uh, when you do the empirical data and the empirical research, is that something that's that's happening now? Yeah. So yes, the um, the the good news is that there's a lot of work being done really around the world um, using these ideas and methods, um, and we have been one of the leaders, I think, in really fostering the science of complex systems and peace and conflict, as well as some of the practical methods that are associated with that and even has start, have started to work to some degree in the policy world with this. Um, but yes, yeah, so we, at my center, at the Morton Deutsch Center at uh, Teachers College at Columbia, we have what we call the Capture Lab, which is a, um, 
a lab that we built, which allows us to bring people in who have opposing views on a moral issue, for example. So you'll take something that is seemingly intractable, like pro-life, pro-choice debates, and you bring people in from different sides of that debate, and then we work with them, and we look at the dynamics of their conversations, and we try to understand, well, when do those conversations actually move in a more constructive place where people feel like the conversation, obviously they didn't resolve it, but they felt like they learned and they'd have that conversation again. It was a worthwhile conversation. And what are the dynamics and conditions involved when those conversations get really stuck and people get shut down and sort of walk away, you know, furious. And so we've been studying that for years. So we have this lab that allows us not just to study the conditions that lead to one or the other, but what we call the dynamics. So let me explain what that means. Please. So we'll bring people in and we'll say, okay, have a conversation for a half hour and talk about, you know, we've, we've, we've um, assessed their attitudes. We know they're an opposing, have an opposing view of climate change, for example, or of, uh, of pro-life, pro-choice. And we'll say, try to, try to, in a conversation, reach some consensus. Well, some of those naturally go really bad and shut down within five, 10 minutes. And others um, actually move into a place where both parties exchange information, learn about their own points of view, learn about the other's points of view, and feel like they'd continue those conversations again. And one of the interesting things we found from studying these is uh, the difference in the dynamics. So when people have conversations that get stuck, what you see is that their thinking, their emotions, and how they behave fall into what we call a really strong, simple pattern where you're wrong, I'm right, you know, I feel great about what I'm saying, I hate what you're saying, you know, and oftentimes I hate you, you know, and it becomes very simplistic and then people get sort of trapped in that kind of cognitive, emotional, behavioral dynamic and they can't get out. And under other conditions, people are able to stay in a more nuanced place where they can feel a lot of different feelings. Oftentimes they do feel sort of frustrated and negative and maybe even angry about the conversation, but they also feel a sense of you know, excitement, stimulation, interest, even empathy for the other side sometimes. So there's a broader range of emotional experiences, a broader range of ideas comes to them, and ultimately those groups can generate statements that are very nuanced and more sophisticated than the sort of other the other groups that fall into those more simple dynamics. So we noticed in the first uh, area of study that the underlying dynamics, emotional cognitive behavioral dynamics, were very different. And so we started to do experiments where we would try to um, encourage more high complexity dynamics. So we would actually bring people in and then we'd organize conversations on, an, on a polarizing issue. But instead of introducing information, so we, we'd introduce two kinds of information, right? With one group, the low-complexity group, we would take a sort of pro-con set of information. So here's uh, the, the abortion debate, and here's a pro-perspective, you know, and a, a con perspective. And we'd give them that information, and then they would have the conversations. And the conversations would move into very simplistic either-or you know, us, them kinds of dynamics and pretty much shut down. Um, alternatively, we would take the same information, the same content, but we would introduce it to the um, participants in what we would say a more complex way. We'd say that the issue of abortion has multiple dimensions, right? There are issues about 
the mother, the health of the mother, the the uh, the fetus, the the legal implications, the health implications, the, and so we sort of lay out the five or six dimensions of that issue, and from that, so again, same content, just how it was sort of framed and presented was radically different, and what we found is when we introduced that kind of more nuanced understanding of the issue at the onset, that the conversations that followed were much more complex. People felt a lot of different kinds of things. They explored in more creative ways the problems and the possible solutions and consequences. Um, and so it moved in uh, the direction that we would expect it to move in um, because the information was framed in a higher complex way, right? So one of the things we just walked away from understanding is that the sort of underlying dynamics matter. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the people were necessarily better or worse. It doesn't necessarily mean that the issues were necessarily more difficult or more contentious or intractable. It just meant that we introduced a process that sort of opened people up to a different kind of discourse that ultimately they found more satisfying and willing to continue to engage in. Fascinating. And to hear this case where you've seen the theory in practice, it it sounds like... um, has there been a case when uh, you've you've seen this theory in practice um, with looking at events and maybe outside of the capture lab in the world? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know there are there are cases that we've studied because they were particularly interesting cases where you would have. So the first case that we studied was the um, civil war in Mozambique. So the quick history of the of Mozambique is that Mozambique didn't exist for for a long time. It was a colony, a Portuguese colony for 350 years, and that at some point there was an independence war, and quickly you had these sort of two sides. You had the government, which was called Frelimo, and then you had the sort of rebel groups, and they tried to quickly um, create Mozambique. It was a country that hadn't existed. They sort of, you know, tried to create one identity for Mozambique, And that resulted in this 16-year, very contentious, very violent civil war. And um, and during that 16 years, there were many attempts by local actors, by the international community, United Nations, to go in and try to make peace in this violent situation. But there was very little change. It was a very stable, violent place. Um, And then some odd things happened, and they were things that were sort of surprising and they were not logical interventions. You know, there had been all these kind of professional, international, or local interventions, but there was these conversations that took place. There were clandestine secret conversations with the black Mozambican bishop and the rebels in the jungle and some other conversations. And that ultimately, within a fairly short period of time, ended in a peace treaty, a peace process, a peace treaty, and, and basically sustainable peace for, um, for quite, a, quite a long period of time in Mozambique. So we studied that case because it was this great illustration of this place that had been you know, a colony for hundreds of years, had been in a, stuck in a civil war for 16 years, and then moved pretty quickly through some odd things to this more stable peace. So we were interested in those dynamics and what would predict those. And people were, had written about those, well, it was the end of the Cold War, or was, there were economic reasons, or there were you know, involvement of certain parties. But the truth is that the dynamics shifted, and it shifted for a variety of reasons. And so 
trying to have a way to explain and understand that that was mindful of the complexity of the context in which that happened and the role that some key actors played, which were sort of surprising roles, um, allowed us to study that case from a dynamical systems perspective and use it as a way to really try to explain the case that wasn't stuck in a discipline. It wasn't just the politics or the economics or the psychology, but it was, it was all of those things in concert. So we've done those, um, those kinds of case studies. We've done a case study on the attempt to address chronic patterns of violence in Harlem through the Harlem Children's Zone, which is a great case and an interesting case. And I did a, a talk on that that is on the AC4 website on understanding how this was a great um, story about Jeff Canada trying to basically come back to Harlem. Uh, he had been born in the Bronx, come back to Harlem and sort of have a direct intervention around chronic patterns of violence in Harlem that would help kids. And he found that that didn't work, that that wasn't effective. It was this like failure from his perspective. And so he had to kind of reconceptualize what he was doing around violence in Harlem as a system and back up, understand that constellation of factors that leads to chronic patterns of violence, and then go in in a very different way to try to address change in the long term. So he again, is sort of worked in a way that's very consistent with how we think about these things. So yes, we have studied cases. We are actively involved in some processes on the ground. So we've worked with some former students in Myanmar. They have been there now for a couple of years, trying to sort of map the dynamics of what sustainable peace could look like and where are the potentials to try to increase the probabilities that that could happen in the, in the transition to democracy there. Um, we have started to work recently in Colombia because there's a peace process there. There's a lot of optimism around the possibilities of peace there. And there are a lot of community organizations that are working on that. So we've been working with some of them using this way of thinking and working to connect with them. So Josh Fisher and Kyung Mazaro and Nick Redding and Chris Straw went down, they're uh, members of AC4, and they went down this spring and, and held a couple of workshops, and that'll continue next year. So yes, we have lab research that we do, a kind of big program of lab research. Um, we also have these applied projects where we try to translate the insights to practices on the ground that um, are informed by complexity and complexity science, um, and then we learn from work on the ground, what is helpful, what isn't helpful, what we need to better translate, what, uh, you know, how do you implement an idea like high complexity on the ground in a way that's useful, right? So, um, yeah, so that's one of the privileges of being here at Columbia, of working with AC4, is that we have these capacities to think conceptually about some of these issues, to apply them to certain cases, to bring some of those ideas into the dynamics lab and study them there, but then also to partner with others on the ground to see if the implications of those ideas and methods are what we think they are, or if not, how to revise them and ultimately revise our thinking. It sounds like such a, uh, an iterative process and that you have this integrated model. I wanted to focus for a moment on the, the DST lab. Yeah. It seems like such an interesting model that focuses on the complexity science and which informs your developing of the theory and continuing to make it such the robust, robust model that it is. Um, did 
can you tell me more about the DST lab? Uh, did that inform the theory of practice that has come out? Yeah, so um, I think, so you're referring to the innovation lab, right? Yes. Okay, so um, so we have this lab at, at, at the center, which is a, a more standard lab where we do lab research. But um, I don't know, probably now seven years ago, uh, I was invited to Berlin by the Berghoff Foundation and met a group of people there, some who are scientists and many who were mostly peace builders who were thinking and working through systems ideas. And from that, we started to convene a process where we would bring together scientists uh, like Larry Leibovich and Andrzej Novak, people that were more what I would call sort of hard scientists who are studying complexity through the lens of physics and chemistry and, and uh, biology, um, with peacemakers who were on the ground trying to use these ideas and methods, um, oftentimes, you know, as we say, in the bush or working with local groups or working with local communities but trying to do it, work in a, in a way that was different and that was really informed by systems thinking. So we'd bring these groups together. Um, the first group, the meeting we had after the Berlin meeting was um, in uh, D.C. at, at uh, uh, George Mason's school there, a um, place called Point of View, where we focused on the uh, Nepal conflict, the case in Nepal, and we brought some experts in from Swiss Peace who had been working there on that case. And we spent about three days with these scientists and these practitioners trying to make sense and, and trying to really innovate. Like what can leading edge science in this area have that's useful in practice and what's been happening in practice that may challenge how we think or work in science. So at first, that meeting was a disaster. <laughs> it was really a disaster for the first few hours because there was so much arrogance on both sides. Scientists were, you know, they were brilliant physicists working with systems in very nuanced and sophisticated ways, and the practitioners would sort of put up their visualized maps of their problems, and the scientists would say, well, that's not a system. Mm. Like, what are, the, what, are the, what are the different states? What do those vectors mean? You're drawing arrows, but there's no logic to them. You know, so they'd sort of fundamentally challenge what the practitioners were doing, and the practitioners were, you know, they were living in harm's way in, you know, Angola in, the, in war zones, and they really felt a sense of their, the sort of nobility of their work, and they really thought these scientists are clueless. They really have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to peace and conflict. I do. I live, this, I live in these places. So there was this kind of arrogance that filled the room you know, and defensiveness, and it was a difficult space for the first several hours. But we were able to kind of sit with it and stay with it, and ultimately it was great. There was this sort of great process that eventually emerged where the scientists really started to understand and appreciate what insights the practitioners were bringing that were really new insights into what is happening in these dynamics. And the practitioners started to say, you know, you can help us make better maps because you have a grammar and a logic and mathematics that we don't have. And we're just trying to sort of help people see things, but maybe there are better ways to see them if we use your tools. So there was this sort of great convergence that ultimately took place in this first meeting. And it led to us working, uh, having, we held another meeting um, in Wisconsin that was funded by a donor and then a subsequent meeting in Hawaii that was funded by the Omidyar Foundation. And these were all meetings where we would work with local clients on issues. So 
in Wisconsin, we worked, for example, with a chief of police who was trying to work with some, on some youth violence issues. And so we would work with a local community. We would try to kind of walk them through some systems tools and then use those to help them think about what they were doing and how to do those things. So we so uh, each meeting subsequently, we had cases, uh, places. The second was in Oahu. Uh, and we would work with community-based organizations and then try to introduce systems thinking and systems tools in ways that would be beneficial for them so that the scientists had a chance to kind of bring in their innovative methods and ideas and practitioners would have a chance of translating them with the objective of innovating. The idea all along was let's try to um, use this tension between scientists and practitioners, which oftentimes typically results in just polarization. You know, you have groups that don't pay attention to each other, they don't read each other's work, they don't, you know, they disparage each other. Let's try to, let's try to capitalize on this tension to say, to innovate and move thinking for, forward, theory forward, empirical research forward, but also really move practice forward. And so that's what we've been, do, been able to do for the last couple of years. Uh, and it's a very promising space. It's a very difficult, exhausting space to manage well. It became a big group. I think the last group is 50 or 60 participants from around the world. Um, so it takes a lot of energy and funding and time to m manage these things. But the payoff is great. And it sounds like this practice-oriented, collaborative setting has really been fruitful for not only the development of the DST in particular, but then also actually seeing practical changes for those organizations and clients that you've worked with and deeper analysis of certain cases. Yeah, yeah, Could yeah. It's, it's paid off in different ways. And again, you know, because it's such an eclectic group, I think that the, the, the takeaways or the payoffs are different for different people. I know certain collaborations were started that, you know, just because they were people at the same space with the same kinds of interests. Um, for us, there, were, there have been new ideas and new ways of thinking and measuring and conceptualizing around peace processes that have emerged from these conversations. So it's really informed our theory and research. Um, but it's also really informed practice. So like one great example is uh, there's a man named Robert Sigliano who is a, a Harvard Law School professor, originally was at Harvard Law School, has been at um, Wisconsin University for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. And he um, ultimately, he was involved as a partner in the, in the innovation labs. And he ultimately was hired by the Amidyar Foundation. So Amidyar um, is a, found, it's a large foundation that's funded by the eBay family, Pierre and Pam uh, Amidyar of founded eBay. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, wealthy. And they created this huge um, uh, philanthropic organization that has different branches. And they've recently just hired Rob um, as, as sort of a vice president level systems facilitator. So his job is to work with all the different sub-organizations that, that it's doing, uh, you know, development work and anti-violence work and peace-building work around the world and help um, employ and apply new systems thinking to enhance their capacities to do what they do more effectively and more sustainably. So Amidyar is totally bought into this way of thinking and working and have created an executive-level position within their organization to foster that kind of impact 
um, uh, in, in across their projects. And I think that's a great sort of illustration of, I think, the resonance of this approach and the, in, you know, it's a, so sort of a first step of, of institutionalizing this kind of work with an organization that's as, as big as Omidyar. So, yeah, so it's happening in projects. It's happening certainly in our research. Um, and now it's, uh, I think it's sort of taking root in different ways, in more institutional ways. You know, USIP has been interested in this, the US Aid, the State Department, uh, the World Bank, the UN, there are a lot of these major organizations are finding value in this point of view in some of the work they do. And I know you've written a lot about intractable conflicts in particular, and it sounds like this, this theory has given the field a tool for addressing intractable conflicts and finding leverage points, I think is how you, you word it, where um, the system can change mm -hmm. and the conflict that was once stable or reach that, that point where it seems like nothing is changing, mm -hmm. there might be ways to find levers to affect that. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about, it sounds like um, in terms of long-term peace building, which is something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, uh, Conversations from the Leading Edge and uh, as a whole show has talked about that in many different episodes and also um, AC4's work talks about sustainable peace. And um, I'm wondering if, so the DST initiative, if it's fully executed, it would improve and the way that we handle intractable conflicts and also access to peace education mm -hmm. uh, globally. And so how do these benefits roll into sustainable peace? Mm -hmm. So um, so the, the model of dynamical systems thinking was originally inspired by intractable problems, right? We felt that, you know, we know a lot in the systematic study of peace and conflict about negotiation, mediation, problem-solving workshops, town hall meetings, these kinds of processes which help many communities, families, relationships, uh, and nations work constructively through their conflicts, right? There's um, most conflicts we resolve constructively, the vast majority, otherwise we wouldn't, as a species, survive. Um, and we found better and better ways to do that, which is the good news. But there are a small percentage of conflicts that don't seem to respond in a typical way to diplomacy or to mediation or even to sort of strong-arm attempts at violence, right? They, they tend to have their own dynamics which are not responsive to the tools that we usually use in diplomacy and, and negotiation and mediation. So those are the ones that we've studied. So my book called The 5% is based on the notion from Paul Deal and Gary Getz, who, st who study the correlates of war database, this 200-year-long database that has looked at exchanges, you know, interna international exchanges over a 200-year period. And what they find is that some of the relationships between states um, get stuck in a very contentious, competitive, and ultimately violent place, and those can last 40, 60, 100 years. Um, and they don't respond to you know, diplomacy or trade or other kinds of approaches that you would think logically they would respond to. They get trapped in these dynamics. But they're pretty rare. It's only about 5% of the more difficult conflicts that get stuck into that. And those are the ones that we've found that uh, a systems approach 
is particularly useful in helping us understand. So, you know, the message that I've tried to share is, look, we have learned a ton about how to mediate effectively and how to negotiate constructively and effectively. And those tools, most of the time, work pretty effectively. And so Getting TS is a great book, and it does help people understand sort of basic negotiations. Um, but there is a percentage of these problems that are particularly resistant to good faith attempts to resolve them, and those are the things that it's particularly useful to think about in terms of com complex systems. And so even though I think the, the, the lens, the metaphor of complex systems is useful in all kinds of areas of life, they're particularly useful with those kinds of problems that get really stuck and ensconced. And so that's what we've been trying to apply this lens to are these more sort of intractable issues. But one of the things that I think you allude to in your question about peace is, um, so one of the complaints that I've had about our field is that we have for 80 years studied problems. We've studied war and aggression and you know the pathologies of human social dynamics. And we tend to study those first because, you know, they, we're afraid of them. And we study the things we fear like cancer and depression. And, you know, and, and in the social sciences and in the peace and conflict world, we've principally studied conflict and war and peace as it's associated with that. So peace processes that get us out of war or peace building that can prevent war. But we really have constrained our understanding of the idea of peace to these, how it's associated to these, you know, avoiding these more negative states, right? But what we found in the area of science more generally is that the sort of positive states of peace and joy and happiness and thriving relationships have their own kind of dynamics and their own predictive parameters that are very different from avoiding divorce or avoiding war or preventing conflict. So the analogy I like to tell is John Gottman's work. He studies marriages and his, they studied, they were trying to come up with a very parsimonious mathematical model that w would predict um, divorce, right? They were interested in studying divorce. For 15 years, they studied couples. They came up with a very highly predictive model that could, within 97%, predict whether a couple, after an hour um, interview with a couple, within 97% whether the couple would be divorced or not, right? Mm -hmm. So they were very excited about that. But what they realized eventually is that that predictive model did not predict thriving marriages. It did not predict happiness. It predicted whether people were together or not, but they could be together and miserable, or they could be divorced and best friends, right? So they had to go back and study healthy, thriving, happy couples in order to understand, well, what are the things that predict that? So we've been approaching peace that way. We argue that we know a lot about the prevention of conflict and peace building in a way that will mitigate the possibilities of future conflict and violence, but that we need to have more systematic understanding and a more holistic understanding of what we call sustainable peace. There are few people that actually study that. There's a guy named Doug Fry who is a colleague of ours who's involved in this project I'm going to mention, who is an anthropologist who studies peaceful societies. And he's one of the few that really emphasizes the need to study peace directly. So that's one of the things that we've been doing. It's just a project that uh, Kyung Mazaro and Josh Fisher and Beth Shada Fisher and I have been um, uh, mobilizing here for the past two years. It's, this is a multi-year project. 
and it is attempting to really map the dynamics of sustainable peace, right? And so one of the things we're doing is using the platform of dynamical systems theory um, to, as a way to think about and ultimately create a space where we can integrate different areas of science and different areas of policymaking around sustainable peace. So it's a multi-year project, and it's required us, um, first of all, identifying some of the top scientists that are studying peace through different uh, disciplines. So neuroscientists who study peace and conflicts, economists, philosophers, computer scientists, historians. You know, so we've reached, we've threw out a kind of broad net and identified about 200 of the top scholars involved in the study of peace from different disciplines. We then uh, will commission some of them to write science briefs, and we'll use those briefs in a process where we'll try to visualize the sy a system of sustainable peace. What does empirical science tell us are the key dynamics and factors that contribute to um, sustainably peaceful societies, right? So this is this multi-year process, and it's this kind of weird thing. It's a hybrid of um, using science, existing science, but having scientists think about and talk about their work in the context of other science that's relevant um, to peaceful dynamics, um, and policymakers um, coming into that space in this conversation so that they think about their work more holistically as well. And in this work, we focus both on the factors that mitigate violence and on the factors that promote more peaceful and uh, uh, harmonious relations. So it's, it's trying to look at both of those dynamics simultaneously in a more holistic way. So it really d is using complex systems thinking and methods and tools of visualization, but it's also using it to create a, 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 an integrative platform to bring different disciplines in science together, bringing practitioner pol practitioners, policymakers, and scientists together, and ultimately to co-create a visualization that each of these groups can use in their own way. It's a tremendous amount of work. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a long story and a lot of work, but it's evolving. And we're very excited about it. We're very enthusiastic. We had our first wor uh, workshop this past spring. We're having the second one this uh, October. Um, and as I said, this is a multi-year process, but it's a very promising process. And <clears throat> it's been incredible to to learn more about how many applications and practical uses there are from this theory, um, from hearing you talk about it at the annual Sustaining Peace Conference that we have at, on campus at Columbia, and hearing about these case studies, the one that you mentioned with the AC4 team working with the World Bank in Columbia. And one question I'm so curious to hear your answer to is uh, about who you think are the most important people to get into these conversations and these trainings that are on the applied practice of DST? Who are the most important people to involve, to engage, you mean? Who should be there in these yeah. conversations now? So uh, I guess I would sort of move in two directions. So so one one of the projects that I'm working on with uh, Robert Sigliano, my, one of my colleagues, is to better inform the general public about systems thinking. Because again, part of what systems is, is it offers a way to take 400 years of science and understand it in terms of how it operates in life. 
So there's a there's a there's a story like half of the story isn't sufficiently well understood. So we know a lot about science and science writers and people like Malcolm Gladwell and David Brooks and others <clears throat> do a good job at sort of telling the story of what social science is finding. But oftentimes they're not understanding the implications of those pieces in a complex whole. So one of the things that uh, um, Rob and I are working on now is a book, we call it the sort of getting to yes book of systems thinking. And we're, temp we're attempting to, or as he calls it, a gateway drug. We want to provide a gateway drug for systems thinking that will stimulate um, uh, uh, the sort of um, mainstream population as to the value of understanding systems. We've written a lot that's more scientific or more, you know, sort of trade books in this area. We've written quite a bit in this area. But we want, we want to write a book that will sort of stimulate and, and raise the curiosity of the masses so that they start to think more about how what certain policies or certain actions in their life, what that means in the long term, what that means in relation to other things, to really sort of step back and understand their actions and their attitudes and context. So that's one of the, thing, one of the groups that we're currently organizing to engage better with is really the general population. And how do you, how can we take, you know, the, the, there's an embarrassment of riches in uh, complexity science and applied mathematics and peace and conflict. There are so many ideas and methods that are really interesting and worthwhile and sort of groundbreaking. So the question is, well, what are the five, right? What are the five ideas that we can introduce to someone in their home or in their job or in their community that are particularly useful to them thinking about what they do. You know, so we're writing this book for people. Uh, uh, I have a daughter who's starting a, um, a job in the fall, and she's going to be working with schools and trying to go into public schools and, and help them, consult for them and help them do what they do better. And so we're really interested in young people who are really trying to change the world in a positive way but feel like the, <clears throat> the tools and the ideas that they have to think about their work are too constrained and too limited. So we want to offer them a, a framework that will help them effectively manage change in complex environments and, and how to do that with sort of five ideas. Mm. And so that's, the, so that's one audience. And then the other audience, you know, you asked me sort of who else needs to be in the conversation. And th this project that we're doing on sustainable peace is starting to work with policymakers. So leaders and policymakers, I think, would benefit from a more... Um, nuanced understanding of the unintended consequences of well-intentioned acts. You know, mm. there's a great book by Dietrich Dorner, uh, whose praises I sing often. He's a German psychologist called The Logic of Failure. And part of what he points out is that many of us in the world set out to do good. In fact, he argues that there are probably more people trying to do good than trying to do bad, right? We're sort of well-intentioned and we go in and do human rights work on the ground or we go in and do peace building on the ground but oftentimes the work we do has unintended consequences because we either don't, we're not mindful of the political environments that we're working in, or we're just not really thinking about how what we do affects other things in unintended ways. And so the more that we can offer tools to help people consider those things in their life um, in ways that are reasonable, not terrifying, we don't want to certainly shut down good work, but you do want to have people who are mindful of those possibilities operating on the ground because we believe ultimately it allows them to operate more effectively and in a more sustainable way. So the policy, maker, the policy arena 
is a relatively new uh, group that we're trying to bring into the conversation. Wonderful. This has been such an honor to have you on the show, Professor Coleman. And um, I don't know if there are any last thoughts um, that you wanted to share, but I just wanted to take a moment and say uh, on the AC4 webpage where we feature conversations from the leading edge, we'll include the articles and further readings on DST and also about sustainable peace and the link to that video that you had mentioned about your talk on the Harlem Children's Zone. That sounds great. Yeah, no, I just I want to make a pitch for AC4. It is a great, so AC4 is this consortium of faculty and, and centers and institutes around Columbia University that uh, are all doing work, really interesting, leading-edge work on peace and conflict. Many of them have been featured in these, uh, in these interviews. Um, and AC4 is a great hub to go to to sort of get a sense of what's happening there. There are oftentimes events that are sponsored, um, but really it is just a clearinghouse of information if you're particularly interested in, you know, uh, mediation around women in Africa. You can sort of search the database, AC4 link, and identify the dozen people that are doing interesting work on that here. So AC4 is this great integrative space that really tries to help connect the dots and people see all these tremendous resources and activities that are happening at Columbia and beyond, but principally at Columbia University. In a way, trying to mobilize this dynamical systems way of thinking. It is. It's a network. It's, we're trying to increase the probabilities of more effective action at Columbia. Yes. Well, your leadership is um, giving us further steps, and also it's wonderful to hear more about this, the goals of the DST initiative in particular, because it's so broad, has such a broad scope, and is so multidisciplinary and multidimensional. Yeah. It's demanding, too. <laughs> it's a fit, as, you, as you can tell, sometimes it's hard to get your head around. But really, it is just helping people step back, see the system, and connect the dots in ways that make them more effective in their work. Uh, your innovation and also productivity is, is very inspiring, and it's great to share it with our listeners. And thank you so much for joining on Conversations from the Leading Edge, and maybe later this fall you'll be hosting a show. So we'll stay tuned for the the five daily ways to, to use DST and, and more to come from this work. Thank Very you good. so much, Professor Coleman. Thank you, Coleman. Meredith. Appreciate it.